This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Find out more at the conclusion of today's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm the only host today. My name's Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. I'm also an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And usually I'm here with my sidekick, my straight man, uh, my hardy to my laurel, uh, Todd Pruitt. But unfortunately, Todd uh, has had a pastoral emergency and is not able to be with us today. So I'm going to be flying solo. But there is no need to panic. I am not going to be indulging in some long monologue about what a fantastic guy I am and how wonderful it is that Todd is not here. True though both of those things may be, I will not indulge in them. In fact, we have a guest today. Uh, He is uh, a minister in the same denomination as uh, Brother Todd, the Presbyterian Church in America. And his name is Jason Halopoulos. He is the senior pastor of University Reformed Church in East Lansing in Michigan, where, of course, uh, another friend of this program, Kevin DeYoung, was uh, once upon a time uh, a minister. And uh, Jason, welcome to the program. All right, Carl. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm right in saying I think that the church was uh, originally a Reformed church in American denomination, and you've moved to the PCA, perhaps while Kevin was still there. I can't remember the exact chronology. Yeah, that's that's right. It it started uh, about 55 years ago as an RCA congregation on the campus of Michigan State University, and uh, I came to the church back in 2012. I'd always been in the PCA, ordained in the PCA, labored. You know that crazy term we use in the PCA, labored, laboring out of bounds, is what they called it uh, at UR. Transgressive, transgressive. That's, that's right. Uh, well, it was in the RCA, and then. Uh, it joined uh, the PCA, moved from the RCA to the PCA, oh, I think in 2014 or 15, somewhere Okay, around. okay. And that was before Kevin left, I think. Is that right? It was, yeah. yeah he led, sure he was. led you out and, and then left you holding the baby by the looks of it. As, uh, oh, it's a beautiful baby. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I once became an editor of a magazine that a friend of mine had edited, and he commented to me, he said, Handing over the editorship of a magazine is a little bit like selling a friend a second-hand car. You know, you never know quite know how it's going to go. Right. Uh, I yes. trust for you it is is going well, and you're you're knowing the Lord's blessing. And uh, uh, it's a this is a wonderful church, uh, just a wonderful congregation. I serve with a great staff, uh, more than wonderful elders that understand themselves to be shepherds of the congregation, Excellent. and shepherds and wonderful deacons. So just a we really have a, a wonderful uh, blessing to labor here. My wife, I remember the first couple of years we were here, she often would say, 
probably about every week she would say, oh, this just feels like an oasis. Nice. And, uh, it still feels like an oasis. That's good. When she been there for, when she been there long enough to know what's really going on, it's, it's yes. great that you can still look yeah. at it that way. Is it a strongly Dutch congregation being RCA in background and, and in the middle of uh, Michigan? It's not. What, what's fascinating is this was started uh, by the RCA, obviously, uh, but it was started on the campus. And like I said, about 55 years ago, and almost all of the early converts to the congregation were just young men and young women that came to Saving Faith on the college campus by the pastor, the founding pastor, wow. reaching out to them. And I'm the third uh, pastor, senior pastor of URC. But now those those young men and young women back in the 1960s that were led to Saving Faith are now the gray hairs in our congregation. Wow. Uh, wow. And very few are, are Dutch. Uh, they're yeah. just yeah. young college students that came to faith on the campus of Michigan State. Yeah. And of course, Kevin had tremendously broad appeal as well. I mean, it would not just be Dutch people that he was attracting. And, uh, yeah. And of course, you have a Kevin remarkably, was an incredible blessing. Yeah. You have a remarkably Dutch surname, of course, Holopolis. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> that is, true. is that Frisian or is, uh, should be <laughs> it might be a combination. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, true. <laughs> anyway, we want to talk to you about a wonderful little book you just put together. It's part of a series. Uh, we, in fact, we've interviewed Dave Strain the pastor of First Pres Jackson, on his contribution to this series on expository preaching. It's the Blessings of the Faith series put together by uh, our friends at PNR Publishing. And you've written the volume on covenantal baptism. But before we get to the question of baptism, Jason, just want to ask, you know, what attracted you to write? I mean, you're a busy man. You, you must prioritize your time. What attracted you to this series? What made you think that this series was worth the investment of time that that it, that it must have taken to produce this this book. Yeah, so this series is actually something that I've thought about uh, for probably eight or ten years, uh, and been in dialogue with other brothers about uh, over that time. Where I thought, oh, if we could just put together a series of books that are good introductions to Presbyterian ecclesiology, Presbyterian polity. Um, that we could put in the hands of lay people uh, that would be helpful in new member classes, that would be helpful in leadership training, that would be helpful in discipleship. Uh, the reality is many of us have found the Nine Marks books to be incredibly helpful. And we thought a lot of them are very helpful for kind of our niche, uh, but they are also distinctively Baptist in different ways. And so we wanted just to have some resources that we could put in the hands of our people as well. That would be helpful along those lines. So that was one piece that the second was, we just have a lot of young, good voices in the reformed Presbyterian world that, man, just our people need to be listening to and need to be reading. And so my hope was starting a series like this, that we could get some of those voices like David Strain, who you mentioned before people that they could be reading him and start to listen to his preaching because he is an incredibly gifted preacher. Um, so that, that was part of the hope as well. What I think is, is distinctively unique, though, and what I think most people will find helpful about this series is that what we decided on was the last portion of all of these books, the largest segment of uh, the books, will just be short question and answers. So as we take whatever topic, it's just a question, and then it's a short paragraph answer, you know, common questions about what do you even, you know, what do we believe about baptism? Why is it that you don't believe that immersion is the only way? Why is it, you know, and just 
quick answers that I think people will flip to the back of these books and find incredibly helpful is, is my hope. Yeah, it's, they seem, uh, I've got three. I have yours, I have uh, Dave's, and I have uh, Guy Richard's on prayer. They seem incredibly user-friendly, very easy and accessible to get to, to, to access the stuff. They, I think Dave said they try to make a third of it, that kind of Q&A or commonly asked questions approach. Very, very useful. Of course, I see they gave you the least controversial and the easiest topic uh, in the reform world: covenantal baptism. Was that? Did you true. choose? Did you choose that, or were you absent from the meeting where they they divvied these <laughs> things up? Uh, <laughs> no, it, you know what it is is I went to I went to seminary knowing that I knew one thing that you had to be a believer to be baptized, and that was the one thing I knew that I knew that I knew going off to seminary and. Uh, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, um, and that was, you know, of course, taught there. Uh, and so I found it incredibly offensive, the idea of, of child baptism, infant baptism, covenantal baptism. Uh, so I can remember one time sitting in a PCA church with my wife, and they were baptizing a baby up front, and that baby started screaming its head off, bloody murder, you know, and and I remember elbowing my wife and saying, see, even that child knows it's not supposed to be baptized. So <laughs> nice. that's how that's how offensive I found it. Uh, and yet now I have found it to be, oh, one of the most beautiful doctrines uh, I think that we can teach as the church. And it's become a love and a passion of mine. And so to be able to re- write on it uh, has been an honor. And I'm just hopeful it's helpful to some people to see the incredible kindness of our God in granting the sacrament to the church. Well, and that's a, a, a nice setup for, for a question. Why is it so beautiful? I mean, you use the language of beauty there. And that's not what one typically associates when one, with baptism. When one talks about baptism, the language of beauty doesn't usually pop up, but you use it and it, and it clearly strikes a deep chord with you. For our listeners, many of whom will not be Presbyterians, many of whom will not be Peter Baptists. Uh, why is it a beautiful doctrine? Why is covenant baptism a beautiful doctrine, Jason? Well, if you give me a couple minutes, let me do it from two ways that, that I think especially flesh this out. One is I think about our God being, he's a covenant-keeping God. And when we see him through that lens, as he's revealed in the scriptures as a covenant-keeping God, and you think here is a God that made promises uh, to to Abraham, for example, and he makes promises to him, and that should have been enough. And yet what he does is then he then enters into a covenant with Abraham um, as a as a just an extra kindness to show him that, look, everything that I already promised to you and said is, is true and real, and I'm committing myself to this. And yet you say, well, but God can't lie. He had already spoken these truths to Abraham, and now he enters into this covenant with him. And then on top of that, as Abraham is still struggling, God gives him the sign of the covenant. He gives him a sacrament, a sacrament of circumcision. And so it's, it's kindness upon kindness multiplied. And, and I think it's the same thing when we turn to the sacrament of baptism is here's God has already given us his promises of working salvation for his people. And, you know, as Calvin says, our, our, weak, our faith is weak and it's feeble and it's frail and it needs to be propped up on every side. And because we're corporeal beings, because we're bodily beings, we desire something that we can see and hear and touch and taste and feel. And, and God, in his exceeding kindness, though we have his word 
And we should trust that. That's enough. But in his exceeding kindness, he gives us something that we can touch, something that we can see, something that we can even smell or in the Lord's table, something we can taste that that seals home to us that, you know what, God has promised this. This is true. Uh, what he has given to his people is truly mine. And, and all of this is pictured before. So that's that's the one. The second, if we're talking about Pedo uh, baptism in particular, covenantal baptism. Uh, it's this beautiful sign and seal of the reality that this promise is not only for us, but for our children. Uh, and that is an exceeding kindness, it seems to me, uh, from our God, that he knows that what we desperately love, our own children, uh, there is nothing in this world I love more than my own children, uh, is he gives us this sign, uh, this visible sign that uh, this promise is also for them uh, that that I have embraced and seized. Do you find any place for the notion of judgment in in baptism? I mean, you, you, the, the emphasis very much on grace in what you've said there, Jason, which I, I love and, and affirm. But when you think of the biblical language of baptism, baptism is also associated to some extent with judgment. You know, I have a baptism with which I uh, to be baptized. Uh, the Lord says that there is a certain judgment aspect to it. Do, do you see that fitting in at all in, uh, in the way you think about baptism? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the things I think we often miss. And, you know, as we're talking about God being a covenant-keeping God, there is both the blessing and the cursing side of the covenant as he enters into uh, with his people. And as baptism, as we even apply this baptism, let's say to our children, this, this uh, infant baptism, covenantal baptism, uh, it can be a sign to them of blessing or cursing. Uh, so as they receive it by faith, it is a true seal upon them of the blessing of God and of the grace of God. But if they reject everything that's signified in that baptism, uh, then it becomes to them a cursing instead, and they are held to a greater judgment because of it, because it, it's a sign, isn't it, of, the, of their being included in the covenant people of God within the covenant community. And they've had all these blessings. They've had the blessing of being raised by Christian parents or a Christian parent. They've had the blessing of being in the midst of the covenant people of God, of being brought to worship week in and week out, of being prayed for, of having the Christian faith that you know, example before them of sitting underneath the word preached, um, of seeing God's people pray and um, partake of the sacraments. They've had all of these blessings that children outside of the covenant family do not have. And so that baptism will serve as a witness against them in eternity that, look, you had all of these blessings. And so in this way, their judgment will, will even be more severe and greater. Yeah. And that reminds me somewhat of when I, I came to, to Peter Baptist convictions, there was, I, don't, you know, I had children. And of course, a lot of Baptists say, oh, of course, when you, when you have children, you just become sappy and sentimental. And that's what, that's what tips people. But for me, it was not a, it's not a sentimental thing. It was actually something that my wife and I were genuinely wrestling with. And that was, how do we pray for our children? Yes. Do we pray with our children or do we pray for them? Because if we were to be consistent with Baptist theology, then really we just have to pray for our children. Mm -hmm. And yet that felt intuitively wrong. And as I read Scripture and as I came to this sort of grasp of the, the covenantal aspect of Scripture, it became, well, actually you do both. 
we we constantly do both for friends in the church. You you pray with them as if they're believers, but you also pray for them. And I found that baptism gave me a a framework by which I was able to handle this this conflict, this dilemma, this this tension that otherwise I just couldn't resolve in in dealing with my own children spiritually. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's that's what we see throughout the scriptures as well. And we see throughout the history of God's people is that this is how they approach their children. And, And for me, at least, this was one of the things that moved the dial for me is I'm looking at the scriptures and I'm, and I'm looking at this idea that look, children were considered part of the covenant community in the old covenant and in the old Testament. Uh, And here I'm believing that they're not part of that covenant community in the new Testament, that I'm to treat them distinctly different from that. Um, and, And yet started to think, well, that would be an incredibly radical change where like you're saying, instead of, praying with your children, you're now simply praying for them instead of with and for them. And that that would have been a radical change for a Jew moving from the old age to the new age, old covenant to new covenant. And and frankly, would not have been good news. Yeah, It, it yeah. would have been horrible news yeah. uh, that my children are no longer part of the covenant community. Yeah, uh, And that was one of the things that most moved the dial for me is that, no, that this has been true of Christian parents, of God-fearing parents in the Old Testament uh, for ages, that they viewed their children this way because they understood the scriptures to teach their children were part of the covenant community. And so they prayed not just for them, but with them and taught them to look to God as their God. Yeah. And that raises, I'm, I'm gonna, this is going to culminate in a question, but it raises a contrast between Presbyterians or Peter Baptist and Baptist that I've noticed in that you've just given up in some ways a, a wonderful statement of the standard Presbyterian approach to the relationship between the two Testaments in terms of uh, we would expect children to be explicitly excluded from the covenant in the New Testament if Baptist theology was to, to stand as correct and coherent, whereas Baptists respond, of course, well, we expect children to be explicitly included within the bounds of, of baptism in the New Testament. And that, I think, points to, I think, a big difference. And, and what I see as a fundamental problem, uh, the, the difference between Baptists and, and Peter Baptists is ultimately a hermeneutical one, it seems to me. And that leads to the problem. And the problem is it's hard to talk to each other because there are no single texts that solve the issue. It's not a case of, wow, pull this verse out, put it on the table. Okay, that solves the issue. We've got to become Peter Baptists or we have to become Baptists. It's more subtle and complicated than that. It's a, it really comes down to how you understand the two Testaments to connect. As a, a Peter Baptist who clearly is an evangelist for Peter Baptism, you, you've written this great book on it, uh, how do you approach talking to Baptists about this issue? How do, you, how do you get down to the hermeneutical issues? How do you get beyond the proof texting to which, to be honest, all sides tend to, to default? Uh, the promises to you and your children or repent and be baptized. You know, we can fire these texts back and forth all day long and get nowhere. How do we get to a position where we can actually talk about the hermeneutical underpinnings 
of what's going on in Baptist, Peter Baptist discussion? Maybe as a precursor to that, I think it would be helpful to say, first of all, I always want to say to my Baptist brothers and sisters that, look, this is a secondary issue. Uh, and, and yet, in saying that secondary issue, I also want to make it clear that it's still an important issue. And so it's important that we understand what we believe about it and can articulate why we believe that according to the scriptures. Um, but I want to make clear that, look, that this is not an issue that we divide over salvifically and uh, that we understand that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as I often say, URC, I bet, I bet 60, 70% of our new member classes are Baptists joining uh, University Reformed Church. Um, and so we're, we're always discussing this. Um, but to get to your question, I think the, the easiest way is to say, look, this is, this is what we have in common, especially because we have this common faith and common Lord, um, and is that we all believe in continuity and discontinuity in the scriptures. So as we look at the scriptures as a whole, we all believe that there is continuity from the beginning to the end. We all believe that there's some understanding of discontinuity from the beginning to the end. So, for example, we all believe that there's continuity and that we believe that this is all about one God. Uh, we believe that this is all one faith. Uh, but there's also discontinuity that we can all agree about. Uh, there's a reason that none of us are practicing circumcision within the church today because we believe in discontinuity or that we're not sacrificing animals as we gather together because we believe in discontinuity. So the question really comes down to is, are you leaning into continuity or discontinuity? What is it that is primary in your hermeneutic, as you were saying, Carl, as you approach the scriptures? And seems to me, as I read through the scriptures, I think that's, that's the ground that, that we got to begin to wrestle with. And as we begin to see that, look, there is one covenant, as we would say as Presbyterians, a covenant of grace that is unfolding all the way from Genesis 3.15 until the end of the scriptures, and it's just becoming more defined and more particular, uh, that this provides primarily continuity throughout the scriptures. And, and once I've kind of established that and say, okay, that's at least how I'm coming to it. Now, now, this is the question, is I think the question for our understanding of this doctrine is often the, the wrong question is asked, I guess is, is the way to say it. The question often asked is, show me where there is a proof text for a child being baptized. That's the question. And my, my response is, I, I don't have a proof text, but neither does the Baptist, the Credo Baptist. Because you say, well, I have texts that show a believer being baptized. And I say, well, great, I agree with that. A believer should be baptized. We all believe in believer's baptism. The real question is this. Show me a text where a child growing up in a Christian home or a believing parent home is only baptized upon becoming an adult. Show me that text. Because here's the reality. If continuity is the thing that primarily we are to lean into in our understanding of the scriptures, that there is one God, there's one faith, there's one people of God, one salvation, then we expect continuity primarily continuity. Children were included among the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Therefore, they received the sign and the seal of being included among the covenant people of God, that, that sign of initiation in the covenant people of God. If they aren't 
in the New Testament than we would expect to see it explicitly, as you said, Carl, but, but we don't. And so to me, and this is what really gripped me as a credo Baptist when I was a credo Baptist one day, is that I found the burden of proof was on me. I needed to prove that discontinuity was the thing I was to lean into rather than continuity. Because children had always been included, but now they're not included. Children received the sign of initiation. Now they don't receive the sign of initiation. But yet, I believe it's one faith. It's one Lord. It's one salvation. So, and when I began to ask that question, uh, that, that, changed, that changed the dynamic for me. And, and I think begins to shape uh, your understanding of the faith and who receives the sign. Yeah. As we're moving towards the close, Jason, I want to ask just one last question quickly, because it's one that often people don't think about. Think about infant baptisms, blessing to the children, blessing to the parents. You have a chapter on it as a blessing to the congregation. What difference does infant baptism make to congregational life as far as you're concerned? Uh, I think a lot. I think one is that you have this child that is before you that is being baptized in uh, can do nothing for itself, uh, can't feed itself, can't walk. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of the need, not just for grace uh, to, to come uh, to, save, to salvation, but to even have faith uh, that God's grace precedes everything. And I think it's a beautiful picture of that. I think it's a reminder that we are a covenant community together, uh, that we are raising this child together because we belong to one another. Um, you know, we take a vow together in the PCA, the congregation. I often make stand during this time and I'll say, do you commit with these parents to, to model and to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord with them? Uh, and they commit to that saying we do, that you see yourself as a covenant family in that way, that you have responsibility to pray for these children, to model the faith before these children, to, to live uh, in light of Christ before these children. But maybe even something that we often miss, I think, is that, you know, when Jesus is uh, blessing the little children in the Gospels, um, he says, for such is the kingdom of God made up, um, and that they are an example before us. And I think we often miss that. Uh, we think we're purely the example for them, and that's the blessing. No, they're also an example before us, and uh, they are modeling before us that childlike faith that we are to have, that simple trusting of our Heavenly Father and looking in faith uh, to Christ. Um, and, and, and in this way, all of these things are pictured before us uh, as we re they receive the sacrament of baptism, let alone the fact that it reminds us of our own baptism. And as the confession says, to improve our own baptism. Well, that's great to hear, uh, Jason. And I wonder, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks also for writing this book. I know that a lot of Reformed pastors, this is an issue that is, they're often asked about because the average person coming in off the street, infant baptism can appear a mysterious, weird, and, and often unbiblical practice for those say who've come from a Bible church or a Baptist background. And pastors can struggle to find good, accessible, compelling literature, which deals with the issue in a way that people have the time and the energy to, to read. So thanks so much for producing what is a very delightful, short, concise, but I think very compelling treatment of the subject. 
uh, and we wish you uh, well in your ministry at this point. If anybody listening is wanting a copy of Jason's book, uh, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you'll have a chance there to enter for a free copy. And while you're there, uh, if uh, the spirit leads, please feel free to make a donation. We are a listener-supported podcast. In the meantime, all that remains at this point is for me to once again, thanks Jason for giving of his time to be with us today, to thank you for listening and to say that we look forward to being with you all next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word, upholding biblical doctrine, sharing the gospel, and equipping Christians with trustworthy Bible teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's your generous gifts that enable this good work. As we approach the year's end, we need your help to raise the funds necessary to finish the year strong and reach even more people in the year ahead. So please join us and help underwrite this encouraging Bible teaching ministry. Visit AllianceNet.org donate to make a donation online. That's AllianceNet.org donate or call 1-800-488-1888.